0: This evening, we'll look at the sixth commandment. If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll also consider together a few verses from Matthew chapter 5. You can go ahead and hold that spot in your Bibles as well. But before reading from the word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our God, we delight to sing praises to your name to adore You in worship, in song, and giving our minds and attentions now to Your Word of truth. For those in union with Christ, our desire is to bring every thought captive to Christ, and to grow in increased holiness of life and zeal for the honor and glory of Your name. And may we, within the mind and heart, submit ourselves to the loving authority of Your Word, as we hear from You tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. In Exodus 20 verse 1 by way of reminder, and God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 13, you shall not murder. And then in Matthew chapter 5, As we continue to very slowly work our way through the book of Exodus, we come this evening to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now a superficial reading of the law at this point might lead us to think, finally, a commandment that I have kept. If I've murdered someone, obviously I wouldn't even be here tonight, I would be locked away somewhere, and so we're obviously good on this one. But of course, you know the words of Jesus well there from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, in which He is not reinterpreting the law of God, but showing us how the law of the Lord should always have been applied to our lives, and that is to our hearts. And so, as we look more at the wickedness of our own hearts, at our anger, pride, envy, and self-righteousness that lies within, we'll see, in fact, that we are all hate-filled murderers within the heart in desperate need of the redeeming work of our Savior. I recently came across this wonderful statement by Jonathan Edwards in speaking of our understanding of the law of God. Excuse me, Edwards writes, a superficial view of the law tends to engender self-righteousness, but the searching, reading, and preaching of the law tends to destroy self-righteousness. Now, obviously, we're after the latter of those two in our studies together through the Ten Commandments. We want to understand the law not in some superficial manner, under the delusion that we can somehow keep the law through our own efforts or abilities, but instead we want to look at the law of the Lord that it might destroy any notion of self-righteousness so that we are driven again and again to that most blessed and wonderful work of our Savior. Now, before we look more extensively at the heart of this commandment, thinking about the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, let's first take a few moments and consider some of the wider applications of this commandment. We might call this applying the law broadly. It's our first point this evening, applying the law broadly within a society. Now, oftentimes when we translate the Hebrew Scriptures into English, it takes more English words to convey what the text is teaching us in the original language. And that's the case here with the sixth commandment. The original is simply two words, no murder, lo ratzach. But even this is a very loaded word that is fleshed out for us at other portions of Scripture as we think of the civil law given to the people of Israel. Now, some translations capture this as thou shalt not kill, But a strict reading of those words would contradict things like the direct edict of the Lord when He tells the children of Israel to go to war to destroy those enemies of God in the land of Canaan. And so, if we think of the command as strictly no killing, then that would seem to advocate a more pacifist type of lifestyle. But that's not what is being taught in the Word of God. In fact, there are times in which it is justifiable for a nation to defend itself if attacked. No nation should be the aggressor in seeking to take land and resources from another, but it would be appropriate for them to defend themselves. Even in this confusing time in which we live, there seems to be universal agreement that it is inappropriate for Russia to invade Ukraine while the Ukraine is justified and has every right to defend its citizens land, and property. Similarly, while it would be wrong to instigate violence against another person, it would be right and appropriate to defend yourself, for example, against someone who may seek to intrude into your home and do harm to you or your family. And then there's the provision of permitting the civil magistrates to inflict capital punishment upon particularly heinous crimes. In Romans chapter 13… The Apostle Paul speaks of governing authorities who are permitted to bear the sword against the wrongdoer. 1 Peter 2.14 allows those in human institutions to punish evil. And so God-appointed civil authorities have not only the right, but they have the responsibility to maintain order in society and to administer appropriate punishment for violations of the law of the land. Francis Turton wrote that it would be a violation of the law of charity to leave the desperately wicked unpunished as pernicious to the republic and injurious to the good. <clears throat> and so, for the sake of those who have been wronged, it is just and right to hold the wicked accountable for the maintaining of civility within society and for the good of all, there are some who willingly forfeit their freedom and ought to be punished, even forfeiting their life. And so, strictly speaking, because we live in a fallen world, there are justifiable forms of taking the life of another, though obviously this should be extremely rare with very carefully applied principles and only within the parameters of laws established by God-appointed authorities. And so, the sixth commandment is not advocating some form of pacifism, nor should we think of this commandment as applying to all living things, as though do not kill is sort of a blanket application to everything that has the breath of life in it. I would argue that it is appropriate to dispose of the cockroach that scurries across your kitchen floor, or to trap the rat that somehow continues to make it into your attic, And obviously, in the book of Leviticus, the Lord institutes animal sacrifices, and so there is an appropriate place for taking the life of that animal, of course, for typological purposes at that particular period for the nation of Israel. And there's also an appropriate place for hunting or fishing done within the boundaries of proper stewardship. And we know that the Lord allows the butchering of certain animals for consumption, though we should implement humane ways for the provision of food. And so, this is not a text that can be used by animal rights activists saying that we should not kill. And so, if those are some things that this commandment is not getting at, well, what is the commandment then teaching us? Well, the word that we find here in verse 13 has to do with taking of human life with evil or wicked intent. Now, even in the taking of human life, the law of the Lord recognizes that there is complexity in motivations and circumstances that might lead to the tragic death of another. In Deuteronomy 19, for example, we read there about this nuance within the law of the Lord. The Lord tells Israel that when they enter into the land of Canaan, they are to establish various cities of refuge so that if someone dies by the hand of another, the one who kills that person can flee there for safety until cause and motive and varying degrees of responsibility can be determined by the elders and the leaders of the city. And it could be that that person must remain within that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. And so, two men might be in the forest cutting down trees, and an axe head flies off the handle of one and strikes another man in the head, killing him These two men have no history of animosity. It doesn't seem that there's any sort of hidden motive that's evident. It was simply an unfortunate accident of living in a fallen world. And so, the life of the one who kills the other is to be spared. However, if one has such hatred within his heart, lies in wait for his neighbor, attacks him, and that leads to his death, even if that was allegedly not his intention. Even though that person may flee to a city of refuge, that does not absolve him of responsibility, and he may face the guilt of punishment. And there are all sorts of other scenarios that are envisioned throughout the law of God with differing degrees of culpability. If a man's ox has shown itself in the past to be destructive and wild, and yet he does nothing to secure it, and it breaks loose, and it kills someone, the owner is more to blame than if this is the first time that his animal has done something violent. If someone fails to put a boundary around his well or some other hazard on his property, and someone is killed as a result, there is a higher degree of accountability for that negligence. And of course, we apply the same type of reasoning in our own civil and criminal laws of the land. We recognize that it's one thing for a pedestrian to step out in traffic and tragically be killed by a vehicle, even if that car is traveling a few miles over the speed limit, versus another scenario in which someone is texting and driving and someone is killed. And so, this is, though this is one of the shortest commandments in the second table of the law, there are many ways… In which the commands ought to be very carefully applied in a society. But really what this commandment is advocating, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 in the summation of the law, is that we are to love our neighbor. And so that's our second point this evening, which is promoting life. And so, this commandment is not just about death and regulating all the various ways in which a person might die by the hand of another and the type of punishment that should be inflicted, but it's really a commandment about life and loving our neighbor and promoting the welfare of those around us. The Heidelberg Catechism helps us understand this by asking the question, is it enough that we refrain from murder? The answer is, No, when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, gentleness, mercy, and all kindness toward Him, to prevent injury to Him as much as we can, and also to do good to our enemies. And so, this is a commandment about the preservation of life, the promoting of life, and the sustaining of life. We are to love the lives of others, and we are to love the life that the Lord God has given to us. And so let's think here for a few moments about the responsibility that we have to care not only for our own lives as we are to live it joyfully for the Lord, but also to care for the life of others. We are to recognize that God is not only the one who has given us our days in sustaining our physical life, but of course, much more, that He has given us newness of life in Christ Jesus. And so, any notion of self-loathing, self-pity, or hating your life is offensive to the God who has given you your days. And so, everything from despondency to thoughts of ending one's life should never be contemplated, encouraged, or promoted. Now, suicide is not an unforgivable sin. I think it's worth mentioning that because there may be some who have background in Roman Catholicism, which teaches contrary to this. Of course, it is something that is extremely damaging, and any form of self-harm is an act that fails to acknowledge the Lord as the giver and preserver of life. He is the one who has good who is good and who has granted to us each of our days and who has determined the content of those days even trial and suffering and hardship and as God's children we should never give in to some form of ultimate despair that leads to even the thought of taking your own life And we could add to this that we should not engage in any sort of reckless living or a fatalistic attitude toward life, some notion of, well, I have eternal life in Christ Jesus, so it doesn't really matter what I do with this present life. But no, our life should be marked by temperance and not self-indulgence that might erode one's health or destroy life. In some various commentaries that I was reading this past week, there were some church fathers that I read that pointed out that we should avoid duels. So, we don't want to see any of you young men facing off in the parking lot after church this evening. Now, that might seem strange to us to have some form of duel, but of course, it would be initiated or instigated because someone's honor has been at stake. But the principle there is taken from Romans chapter 12, verse 19 that we should not take vengeance because of some personal offense against us. Our very bodies have been bought by the shed blood of Christ, and so we ought to honor the Lord by caring for our lives. But even more than that, any form of self-harm or allowing others to harm themselves is contrary to God's design. God has made us who we are. From the way that we look, to our various gifts and temperaments and personalities, to our various shapes and sizes, to the fact that we are male or female. All of these things are from the loving hand of God who crafted each one of us just the way that we are. And so, to despise certain things about us, to be discontent with who God made us to be, by inflicting the scalpel or hormone therapy treatments or even wishing to be someone other than who God made you to be, these are not things that God's people should entertain within mind and heart. These are not things that we should encourage or support in the lives of our friends and those around us. It is not a loving thing to support a friend in some sort of gender reassignment procedure. While our society says that that is a loving and an enlightened thing to do, this is actually to hate our neighbor, and it is to hate the God who made them the way that they are. For we are each fearfully and wonderfully made by our Creator. And so, we should not do anything that brings harm to self or harm to others, but rather preserve life and honor the Lord who grants life In particular, we should think of those who are weak and vulnerable. This is why the believer in Christ should be a strong advocate of the defense of life. And we should, through all legal and appropriate means, bathed with prayer, seek to overturn laws that allow for abortion at any stage of life under any circumstance. From the moment of conception, that child is an image bearer of God. And to take his or her life from the womb is a clear violation of the sixth commandment. And no nuance of language, by calling it women's health or reproductive rights or anything else, can make it other than what it is the murder of a human being. John Calvin wrote, if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. But not just abortion, but euthanasia, so-called mercy killing should be prohibited as well. Our society oftentimes disregards the elderly or the disabled or the extremely ill. We should show great respect toward all. And those who struggle in various ways throughout this life with various infirmities or struggles as they age, they should guard their own heart against the notion of being a burden to others. That should never drive our decision-making, for all of life is precious and all of life matters to our God. Now, someone could be gravely ill, and he may in good conscience choose to cease life-saving measures, but that's much, much different than actively seeking to bring about the end of one's days. One theologian has written, life and death are God's business. Only He grants life, and only He is authorized to end the life And so, whether preserving our own life or the life of our neighbor, we might ask, why? Ultimately, why does life of mankind matter so much? Because of course, men and women are created in the image of God, even in our fallen states even in a feeble or very infirm state, even in an undeveloped or underdeveloped state, all of humanity bears the image of God, and therefore all of life is valuable to Him and should be to us. Imagine a, a young woman who goes away to college. She meets a godly young man who appropriately pursues her, and they become engaged And we'll just assume for purposes of this illustration that they're old school and don't have digital pictures of one another. But they get a friend to take some photos of them, and she can't wait to return home over break and to show all of her friends and family the picture of one whom she is betrothed to marry. And imagine that one of her friends takes the photo and draws glasses on his face and little horns on his head and blackens out some of his teeth and completely disfigures the image. Well, that's a hurtful thing to the young lady who entrusted you with that image, that photo. By disfiguring the image, you have shown yourself not to be her friend, but you've shown herself to be someone who has no regard for her or the one that she loves. And without a genuine apology, you should not be surprised if you don't get an invitation to the wedding. And how much more? this grieves the living God whose image is upon all of mankind when we treat the precious life of another or our own life with such little regard. When we disdain human life, we show ourselves to have hatred toward a God who is the giver of such life. Well, let's explore things a little bit more and think through how Jesus applies the law. And this is our third and final point this evening, that is applying this law to the heart, driving down deeper, we could say, to see some of the varying ways in which we should apply this commandment. Again, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 does not rewrite the law of the Lord, but drives at the motives and intentions of the heart, telling us that if we have anger within our hearts, we are guilty of murder. We are guilty of violating the sixth commandment. And as Jesus exposes the heart of man, I think what He shows us is that, in fact, we are all, to varying degrees, angry people full of self-justifying excuses. And just think of some of the ways in which we show ourselves to be angry people, Perhaps we show our anger in our actions through driving in a frustrated or reckless manner when someone does something unpleasant to us, to raising voices or stomping our feet or slamming cabinets, allowing division to go on within a relationship without pursuing reconciliation, behavior that sets a bad example for those who are impressionable. Perhaps our anger is displayed through our words, again, raising a voice in harshness or spreading lies about another person or entertaining gossip which damages the reputation of another, biting words or false accusations, betraying the trust of someone who confides in you, mocking the weakness of another, or laughing at their misfortune. Or it could be that we're the only ones that know the anger that is within our own hearts, discontentment with our own lives, envying the success of another, or being envious of someone else's position in life, wishing evil or calamity to fall upon someone, plotting ways for someone to fail, sort of fantasizing about their demise indifference, allowing pride to grow within the heart. These are all varied and different forms of anger. And because anger is something that is so pervasive in our society, in our homes perhaps, in our own lives, it can be easy for us to normalize such anger or to excuse such things in our lives. I'm just tired. I'm stressed out. I've had a rough week. I just don't feel good right now. I've got low blood sugar. In other words, my anger is more situational. It's tied to something that I can't control. I really can't be responsible for it. Maybe I even attempt to shift the blame. You make me so angry. It's the increased traffic, all these northerners moving down to Polk County, It's the inefficiency of the whole medical industry that tells me to get there 10 minutes early and then makes me sit around for an hour for the doctor to come in. But none of this will do if we're talking about the heart. Now, certainly the fact that I live in a fallen world, there are all these contributing factors that make anger within a greater temptation for us. But ultimately, I am responsible for my own heart, and I am answerable to the Lord God who sees all things and who knows all things. And so, the question is not whether we are angry people or not, but the real question is, how is the anger in my life displayed? How does it reveal itself? And even deeper than that, why do I get angry in the first place? You know, it's interesting to look at the life of Jesus and the times in which He displays righteous anger. In Mark chapter 3, when the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, we read that He looked around at them and was, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And so, Jesus, you see, is angry at the effects of sin upon the hearts of others and how it manifests itself. In Mark 10, when the disciples are trying to keep the children away from Jesus, we read that Jesus was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 2, you'll recall when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it of the money changers and those who are selling animals for sacrifice because of His zeal for the holiness of God. And so, the anger of our Savior is toward the evil in this world, toward those who would seek to detract from the glory of God, toward those who would hinder others from hearing the gospel. Ultimately, it is righteous anger because it flows from a holy and righteous heart that is filled with love for His Father in heaven. In contrast, our anger flows from a heart that is filled with a different kind of love, a love for ourselves. People don't do what we want. Circumstances aren't working out the way in which I wish. My inability to control others and situations is exposed, and others don't treat me the way in which I think they should. And so, in my own little world within my mind and heart, I have a wonderful plan for myself and how everyone else should act in my world. And because others are not submitting to my purposes, and I'm not submitting to the will of my Father in heaven, that anger wells up within. And you see, Jesus connects anger of the heart to murder because when we get angry, we might ask, well, what do we want? We really want other people to be removed. We want them gone. We want them out of our life, and so we are guilty of murder within. Now, we might think that the words of Jesus don't apply to me, but even in my impatience toward another, I'm casting judgment upon God, saying that I could have done a much better job in making this person in my image than God did in making them And so, Jesus shows us to be angry and proud and judgmental people who are in desperate need of His redeeming grace. And so, just like the other commandments that we've looked at in our study, the further that we delve into the breadth and the depth of God's law, the more we see how far short we fall in living for the Lord. But our great comfort is that Jesus died for murderers. Jesus died for angry people, for His work upon the cross is sufficient even for the most heinous of sins. I vaguely recall an incident from a number of years ago in which it was alleged that a serial killer on death row put his faith in Christ just before His execution. of course, God alone knows the conscience, knows the heart of that man, but this outraged many, not only those within the wider culture, which we would expect, but many within the evangelical community, that such a wicked person could presume to be forgiven. But isn't this the wonder of the gospel, that the shed blood of Christ has infinite value to cover and cleanse even the most guilty conscience… And there is hope of forgiveness for us all. And so, all of the things that we've thought about and discussed tonight about the various ways in which the sixth commandment might be broken, from murder to abortion to rage and outbursts of anger to even the envy and jealousy within the heart, there is wickedness and there is deceit within the heart of man, but there is hope of pardon. In the wonderful work of our Savior who laid down His life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. It's truly amazing to look at the life of the Lord Jesus and see one who had such love for hate-filled enemies, who had such patience toward the foolishness of His disciples, who never took vengeance even when He was wronged, who never laid awake at night contemplating revenge or fantasizing about the destruction of another, but instead he was always compassionate and kind, protecting and preserving and restoring life. And who was, and to the very end, silent before his accusers, and who even prayed in Luke chapter 23 for forgiveness for the very people who murdered him and even dying such a cursed death reserved for murderers and insurrectionists. He took the place of the violence by taking the wrath of God that we deserved upon Himself. And so, in Christ Jesus, your life is saved. In Christ Jesus, you can find pardon for all of your anger and murder and rage and even your hatred against the living God, when it is Christ who has subdued men and women to Himself. And now because the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we long to be children of God whose hearts and minds are filled with love, love toward Him and love toward neighbor. As we close, hear these words from Titus chapter 3. whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen.